0: We started a series last week called Cliché. Uh, We said this series is kind of the stuff that we Christians sometimes say. Um, These are different cultural belief systems that people oftentimes attribute to God. But in reality, God never said. So these clichés, you might say to somebody who's discouraged, you might say to someone who's down, you might say, well, let me give you you this little Christian cliché and hope to try and make you feel better. And so we, we have these clichés like, Uh, Last week, we looked at God wants me to be happy. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at uh, God helps those who help themselves. That's actually today. Uh, We're going to look at um, uh, a few others that my brain can't uh, process right now. God won't give you more than you can handle. You ever heard that said before? Uh, We're going to look at a few of these Christian cliches, and the reason we want to look at these cliches is because oftentimes we use these cliches to try and encourage someone, to try and help them out. But but here's what we need to know. In in John chapter 8, Jesus said, uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so if we want to encourage and we want to build the people up around us, we need to be willing to give them the truth, because there is healing found in the truth. And as Christians, our responsibility is that we are to speak the truth in love, that we help the people around us, we help them find truth, we help them find healing uh, and freedom through the power of God's Word. So today, we're going to deal with this cliche that says, God helps those who help themselves. Now, what's fascinating to me is uh, there's a research group by the name of Barna, and they do a bunch of research into different belief systems. And they did this research in 2017. They did this survey And found uh, that they called a number of people, and 50% of the people, over 50% of the people polled, said this was one of their favorite verses in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. In fact, it goes a little further. The research found that 75% of of young people, of young people, teenagers, said that this idea, God helps those who help themselves, is the main, uh, is the, the central message to the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. In fact, as we look at our American society, we value this self-sufficiency, right? We value people who who go and and achieve. I mean, isn't that the American dream? The American dream is you go and you make it happen. And that's one of the blessings of living in America. And so we talked about last week, we talked about the movie Pursuit of Happiness. And you've got that guy, Chris Gardner, and how he comes through all these uh, overwhelming obstacles and becomes a success, and we love to hear that story. That's the underdog story. In fact, all of the great movies uh, are underdog movies uh, of somebody who works hard, who has incredible determination, and then they overcome. I mean, I, I mean, think about all the great movies. And this is going to tell you what kind of movies I like to watch: Rocky, man, he uh, the underdog, uh, the Karate Kid, uh, Forrest Gump, Blind Side. Like these are great inspirational stories. You hear about this these people who overcome tremendous odds. And they're victorious because of their determination and their hard work. And so we love that idea in our, in our culture of self-sufficiency, of somebody working hard to overcoming, of, of, of accomplishing something. And so then we take that principle that we value in our culture, we attribute it to faith. And so that's where we get this idea that God helps those who help themselves. The problem is, it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. And the problem is that verse is not in there it's not the central message of the Bible. In fact, the idea that God helps those who first have to help themselves was first found by a guy by the name of Aesop, who was a slave and a storyteller uh, hundreds of years before Jesus lived. And he wrote this, fa- this fable about the Greek gods, and it's called uh, Hercules and the Wagoneer. And this Wagoneer, this guy driving a wagon, he gets the wagon stuck in the mud. And so he calls on Who else is going to call He's going to call on Hercules. Hercules, you're so strong. Would you come and help me get my wagon unstuck? And in the fable, Hercules says, no, you need to get out there and push the wagon yourself because the gods come and help those who help themselves. This saying was made more modern in the 1700s. I don't know if that's modern or not. But uh, Benjamin Franklin included included this exact saying, God helps those who help themselves in his poor man's almanac. And that saying then has caught on like a flu in a daycare. It just spread all throughout. And everybody starts believing this idea God helps those who help themselves. And so today, we want to wrestle with this cliche, if we will. We want to wrestle with this idea and say, is there any truth in this cliche? Is there anything that we can take out of it? Is there anything that's, that, what does it mean for us in our life and our faith? And so, we're looking at a text that many of us are familiar. If you've been in church for a while, you have probably heard this story, Jesus feeding the 5,000, Matthew chapter 14, that Zach read for us. You've heard this before, and a great story. Uh, but I want to look specifically at this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in light of this cliche, in light of this idea that God helps those who help themselves. And, and let's have this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, 5, let's have it provide some insight is to this idea, does God help those who help themselves? So it starts out in verse 13, and uh, uh, Matthew writes and says, Jesus heard about John. He withdrew in a boat to a desolate place. I love that throughout Scripture you see the humanity of Jesus, where, where we know that Jesus is, is God. He is the Son of God. He is God himself, but he also chose to become a human being like us. And so here you see a portion of Jesus' humanity the end of chapter 13 of Matthew, Jesus is rejected in his hometown. Imagine going to uh, your family and you're saying, I got a great message for you, and they reject you. So Jesus has been rejected in his hometown. And uh, Then at the beginning of, uh, of chapter 14, uh, he hears that his cousin John the Baptist is beheaded. That's the story of John the Baptist being beheaded. It's kind of an intriguing story if you like that sort of thing. Read it. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, the first couple of verses. And so Jesus hears about this going on, and he had a rough day that just got worse. He's got rejected out of his hometown. He hears about his cousin. He's kind of overwhelmed. And so what does he do? He does what any of us would do. He says, you know what? I need to retreat and go to a quiet place. And he gets in a boat, probably brings his fishing rod. He's going to go spend some time alone just getting away. We can all understand where Jesus is at, right? I mean, I mean, put yourself in that situation. At the end of a hard day, what would, you, what would you do? You've got all this bad news. You've got all this stuff happening. Man, you just, you just need to get away and get some time to yourself. And so Jesus gets in the boat. He goes away. And the problem is the crowds heard that Jesus was, was leaving. And so they followed Jesus on foot. Verse 14 says that the time, by the time Jesus got the boat to the desolate place, desolate place he was heading, that the crowds had followed him and he was surrounded by a huge crowd of people. Again, picture the humanity of Jesus. He's had this really difficult day. He got rejected from his hometown. His hurt his cousin. has died in a horrible way. All he wants to do is spend some time by himself and sit down with a gallon of chunky monkey ice cream and just try and make himself feel better. And all of a sudden, there's all these crowds of people making demands on him. Jesus, we want you to do this for us. Jesus, we want you to teach us. We want you to hug us. We want you to talk to us. We want you to heal us. I mean, how many of you... In that setting, how many of you would lose your cool? At the end of a long day, you're like, I just want to go in my bedroom and just have a few minutes, and then the kids start banging on the door, Mom, Dad! I mean, how many of you would lose your cool? How many of you would respond with, with, with grump, and just you just bite someone's head off? But I love this because Jesus has compassion on them. Verse 21 says that there's going to be 5,000 men uh, plus women and children. And so, again, if you've got a family like like mine or the Dunlaps, that's a lot of kids. But if you've got a regular-sized family, you're looking at there's possibly 20,000 people that are at this shore waiting uh, on Jesus. It's this long day, and here's Jesus. He, he, He gets to the desolate place, and he finds all these people, and instead of being grumpy, he's compassionate. And he's loving people, he's encouraging them, he's healing them, he, he's meeting the needs. I picture Jesus, he, he's, he's hugging the old ladies, he, he's kissing the little babies on the head, and he's just interacting with everybody there. And I don't know about you, but have you ever, you ever had that situation where you're talking to somebody? Uh, uh, there's this pastor I know who lives down in the Tri-Cities, and every time I'm around him, there's all these hundreds of people around us, and when he sits there and talks to me, for 30 seconds, he makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. Like, you are the only person who matters, and he's just engaging with you, and every time I talk to him, I'm like, man, I feel so good, and then he goes and does it to the next person, the next person, I'm like, okay, I I see it. Like, I kind of imagine Jesus with these 20,000 people, he's probably like that, where when he's talking to you, you're like, man, I'm the only person that exists. Jesus wants to talk directly to me, and nobody else matters. Jesus is right here. That's what I picture. He's got all these people around him, and Jesus is compassionate, and he's engaging these people. He's meeting their needs. And he spends all day, he's talking to people, he's healing them, and the problem becomes he spends all day there and it becomes dinner time. Disciples are saying, man, I'm, we're hungry, like people are hungry, what are we going to do? And so the disciples begin to say, well, 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 somebody needs to go talk to Jesus. Now, it doesn't tell us which disciple goes and talks to Jesus about needing to feed people, but I'm going to guess it's Peter, because Peter's always the guy who just opens his mouth without thinking. He's just like, okay, I'll be the mouthpiece and I'll blurt whatever I want without thinking. And so verse 15, uh, Peter, the disciples, they they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, it's late. We're in a desolate place. Jesus, you need to send everybody away so they can go and find food and feed themselves. And again, here's Jesus. He's had compassion on these people. I don't know how long it would take him to talk and to love on and to heal 20,000 people. But I imagine there's still more people that Jesus wants to meet and Jesus wants to be able to interact with. And so Jesus, he's loving other people, and he says, verse 16, he says, listen, disciples, they don't need to go away. You need to give them something to eat. Again, this is where I want you to, to picture the story. Picture yourself as one of the disciples, right? I mean, here's here's here you're coming to get away off with Jesus. You're like, hey, this is great. We're going to go spend some alone time. We're going to have this, this time to kind of encourage him. Hey, this will be really good. And then when you get to shore, there's... 20,000 people waiting for you. And the disciples, man, they must have been like ushers where they're kind of like holding people off. They're kind of escorting people. And they're like, this is not what we thought we were going to be doing today. And now all these people are hungry. They're like, Jesus, send them away. We want, to, we, we want them gone. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to send them away. He says, no, you're going to go, and I want you to feed them. Again, think about the humanity of the disciples, think of the disciples, they're looking around and they're saying, well, how are we going to feed these people? There's no Domino's pizza. Domino's was closed. It wasn't open the area. There's no Costco. In fact, they didn't ha- even if there was a Costco nearby, uh, one of the other gospel writers says they didn't have enough money. It would have cost them eight months' wages uh, of money for them to be able to put now, buy enough food to feed everybody. And they're like, we have nothing to do. We have no way to do this. And so again, one of the disciples, again, I'm going to say it's Peter. One of the disciples, verse 17, says, Jesus, we can't feed these people. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish. There's nothing that's gluten-free. There's no vegan options. Like, Jesus, we can't feed these people. It's, it's possible? The need is too great. And this is where Jesus, he does the unexpected. Listen, this is one of the things that I, I, I love about Jesus. This is the Jesus I know. It's my Jesus does the unexpected. Do you know that Jesus? Do you know the Jesus that does the unexpected? Because despite the odds, despite how difficult the circumstances are, Jesus, my God, he is omnipotent. That means he's all powerful. That means that, that, that God can no, nothing is too hard for him. That God can do the unexpected. And this is where I, I, you need to know that Jesus is not just a good teacher. Jesus is not just a good example for you to follow. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he shows up when nobody expects him to do. And he does the unexpected. He's not limited by circumstances, he, he, by any difficulty, and any single moment. God can take the littlest of something, the littlest of nothing, and change your life, uh, change the course of your life forever. That's what Jesus does. He does the unexpected. And so verse 18, Jesus says, bring me the loaves and the fish. He orders everybody to sit down on the grass, and he takes the loaves and the fish, and he blesses it. And he breaks it apart, and he gives it to the disciples and says, disciples, you go spread out and feed everybody. And everybody, all 20,000 people of them, or if they've got big families like mine, there's 35,000 people. They're just perspective. All people are fed and are satisfied. And after they're done eating, Jesus sends his disciples back out and they gather 12 baskets of leftovers. How many of you are good with leftovers, right? 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, when we read this story, oftentimes we're caught up in the miracle, right? We're caught up in the idea of, well, how did Jesus do that? When we want to begin to understand well, well, how did Jesus take the five loaves of bread and two fish and, and maybe the fish were like whales. Maybe they weren't fish. They were whales. and They're really big fish. And you could feed a lot of people with them. Or, or, or you know, how, how did this happen? How does, and some of us, if you struggle with faith, you look at a miracle like that and you're like, that's impossible. There's no way for God to feed 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. But listen, this is what the text says and this is what I believe happened. That's exactly what happened. I don't want to spend our time this morning trying to explain how this miracle happened again what we want to do is we want to look at this story and deal with this cliche of how this is going to influence us understanding this idea that god helps those who help themselves in fact there's three things that we're going to learn from this text three things that we're going to take away for this idea number one number one is you and i are called to do what we can to be a part of what god is doing okay You and I, we are called to do what we can to be a part of whatever God is doing. All right? So again, in the story, here's the problem. There's all these people here. uh, They're they're curious how we're going to feed them. And what do the disciples do? They say, well, we've got five loaves and two fish. It's not enough. It's impossible for us to feed all these people with this. But we've got these five loaves and these two fish. And Jesus takes what they've got. And Jesus uses it and he multiplies it. He does a miracle with it. He makes it enough for everybody to be fed. Now, honestly, Jesus, he didn't need the five loaves and, fi- five loaves and the two fish. He could, have, he could have fed them any other possible way. He could have built a dominoes right next door in a matter of time. I mean, he's God in the flesh, right? There's a story in the Old Testament where uh, Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. And they're wandering in the wilderness. And the question is, well, how is God going to provide for his people? And that's where every morning they wake up and God provided this, this manna on the ground, these breadcrumbs essentially, that they could gather together and that's how God fed them. So God could have fed these 20,000 people any sort of way. God could have done any sort of thing. But what God does is he says, hey disciples, you've got this little bit that you can offer me. I will take that and I will use that and I will multiply that and I will use that for, 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 for my glory. I know that sometimes we come to this dilemma, this little bit of a struggle in our life on, on, on how do we relate God's sovereignty, the fact that God's in control, with our own personal responsibility, our, our personal choices, how these two things play out together. I, I mean, if, if, if God could have fed them on any sort of way, if God could have miraculously made anything appear, how come God used what the disciples had to offer? Well, we looked at this story earlier this year, we looked at the story of Esther, and Esther is a great story because it deals with God's hand of providence, how, how God orchestrates all the details of our world and all the details of our life for our good and for his glory. I mean, that's, that's God's sovereignty, that's God's hand of providence, that's what God does. But, but there's also this idea on, on where does our personal choice, our personal responsibility, our action play into God's sovereignty. And, and one of my favorite verses that helped me understand these two things, one of my favorite verses out of the book of Esther was, was Esther chapter 4, verse 14. In that story, in that, cha- in that chapter, uh, Mordecai is talking to his cousin Esther. He's saying, Esther, you've been made queen. I think you should go before the king on behalf of God's people and intercede to prevent this holocaust from happening. And, and so he's, he's, he's trying to get her to go and do this, and he says this. He says, listen, Esther, if you keep silent... Hope is going to come from somewhere else. But perhaps you have become queen for such a time as this. And in that statement, he acknowledges, listen, God is still sovereign. Listen, Esther, if you don't do anything, God's still going to do what he's going to do. God's going God's, God's to play out his story. God's going to work. But Esther, perhaps God has put you in such a time for this, that God could use you. That you could be a part of what God is trying to do to prevent the Holocaust and to redeem God's people and this is kind of that understanding on how our actions and God's sovereignty play together As we have an opportunity to be a part of what God is doing this is where I want us to understand we can't take uh, human responsibility completely out of the equation in fact in second Thessalonians uh, the apostle Paul is writing to a letter to a church in in Thessalonica and he's writing them about hey Jesus he, he's telling them about Jesus coming back the second return of Christ. He's kind of pointing to everything that's going to happen in Revelation. He said, yes, there's a time when Jesus is going to come back. He's going to make all things new. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more mourning, no more pain. No, all, all things will be made new. And, 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 and Paul is, is telling this church about this has happening. And some of the people get really excited. They're like, Jesus could come back at any moment? And so they begin to quit their job. Man, if Jesus is going to come back, man, we're going to be ready. We're going to just, just, just spend all of our time waiting for him to come back, and it'll be great. We, won't, we don't have to work anymore because he's going to come back, and he's going to make everything right. He's going to fix everything that's gone wrong. And so Paul addresses that in 2 Thessalonians, and he says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. He says, listen, you can believe that Christ is coming back, but you still have your own personal responsibility. There's still action that has to happen. And this is where, where when, when we have faith in God, faith is never meant to be idle." I mean, we can claim, hey, I trust Jesus, and I believe in him. And if you do, uh, faith is a verb. Faith is an action. It is something that you do. And so that's where we, when, when we pray to God, when we're praying, prayer is meant to empower us. Prayer is meant to, to guide us into action. And so we pray, and then we go, and we, we, we do, right? There's a story, I think I've told this befo- told before. There's a story about this guy, and there's this huge flood coming to town. And so there's all these warnings all across the news stations. Hey, you need to evacuate because the flood's going to come and it's going to wipe everything out. And this guy says, you know what? I don't need to evacuate. Uh, of course, this guy's a man because uh, men don't listen. And so the guy says, I don't need to evacuate. I'm going to pray and pray, God, would you, would you save me? God, would you protect me? And so the water begins to rise and gets up to the man's uh, front steps. And his neighbor comes by. His neighbor's got a little skiff, little boat. His neighbor comes by, and says, hey, dude, I'll, I'll rescue you. Come jump in the boat. The guy's like, nope, I pray to God. God's going to save me. It's like, all right, you're lost, man. The neighbor goes off. The water gets up, and the water's now uh, into his house. It's spilling into his house. And so everything, the house is getting flooded, flooded. And a police boat comes by. And they've got a big motor on the boat. The police boat comes by, honks their horn, and says, hey, dude, we'll rescue you. Come get in the boat. And the guy says, nope, I pray to God. God's going to save me. The police are like, dude, you're a fool, whatever. police boat drives off. The water continues to rise. Uh, uh, It gets to the point where uh, the water's filling the entire house, and so the man's on his roof. That's the only place that he can get to get out of the water. And all of a sudden, uh, the police come with one of those helicopters, and they drop one of those cool rope ladders, you know. You see those on the movies. They got the rope ladder out, and they're like, hey, dude, jump on the ladder. We'll save you. The guy's like, nope. I got it covered. I prayed to God. God is going to save me. Police are like, all right, dude, whatever. They fly away. Eventually, the man drowns. The man drowns, and he goes up to heaven, and the first thing he says is, God, God, I need an answer. God, I need an explanation. How come you didn't save me? I prayed to you. God says, well, man, I, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Like, what more could you want? Like, I I, I did. And it kind of gives you this idea that that there's a little bit of action that goes into us putting faith in God, right? I mean, that's where we pray for our families and say, God, would you keep our families safe? And we pray, but we still lock our doors, right? I mean, that's kind of just the way it works. We pray and we trust and we seek God, but there's still an action that we put into it. Faith is a verb. Faith is an action, so here's, here's just a simple application for you this morning. In what way do you need to put your faith into action? In what way do you need to put your faith into action? Let me just throw some examples out. I talked to a guy this week. Uh, he came into the office and, and he's talking about, oh, you know, I've done construction work. I'm trying to get a job. And I'm like, that's great. He said, I, I've been praying for this, praying for God to give me a job. I'm like, that's awesome, man. So where have you applied? Well, I haven't done that yet. I haven't done that yet. Do you kind of see the correlation here? If you're praying for God to give you a job, then it means you need to get out there and you need to put your resume out there. You need to start putting applications out. Uh, He says, well, I don't have a license. Well, great, go get your license. You had your driver's license, Have whatever problems, go do whatever it takes to get that in place. I mean, if you're praying for God to do something, you've got to take some responsibility and say, all right, God, if I'm praying and asking you for a job, and I feel like you're going to give it to me, but that means I'm going to go and put my application out there. I'm going to go and, and do what I can there. In fact, I remember when Sam and I were young, uh, newly married, we had little kids at home. Man, I remember being young, and I remember thinking, man, I wish I, wish I had a friend. I wish I had like an older mentor, a confidant that I could just talk through things and and help wrestle with life. And I remember praying that God would do that. Listen, if you are in that situation where maybe you're in that season of a young parent and you're just like, man, I need a friend, listen, maybe the first step for you is to pray about it and then to go be a friend yourself, right? Isn't that the old King James Version? It says, a man who wants friends must show himself friendly. And so you want these things. Maybe you need to pray about it, and then go seek it out. You want a mentor? Well, look for someone and say, hey, would you be interested in this? Would you be interested in mentoring me? I mean, this is where where people, uh, they begin to complain about the church. They begin to complain about what's happening in the city. And that's one of the things we all get very good in our seats, and we sit back, and we're easy to say, here's everything wrong with the church. Or here's everything wrong in our city. But the question is, what are you actually doing to make it better? Because we can all sit back from the peanut gallery and say, oh, here's everything wrong with the church. Well, we're not the ones serving. We're not the ones giving. We're not the ones in the trenches. And we can complain about all the problems in our city. I remember uh, I, I, there was a guy that was doing work with the homeless, and I thought, you're doing it wrong. You're not helping. And then I'm looking at it, and I'm like, you know what? But I'm not doing a darn thing. So I can be critical of you. Oh, you're not doing it Right while you're doing something that I haven't even broached, right? What is, in which way do you need to put your faith into action? What is a step you need to take? Where instead of just waiting on God, you begin to say, God, I've prayed about this and now I'm going to take a step. Second thing this story is going to teach us is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. Again, there's all these people, 20,000 people, they've come to Jesus, they're hurting, they're broken, they're struggling, they're searching for healing, and they come to meet Jesus. And again, I don't know how long it takes to heal 20,000 people. I don't know how long it takes for Jesus to interact and to love on and to hug all the old ladies and to kiss the little kids. Like, I don't know how long that takes. I imagine it takes a long time. And these people, they've come to see Jesus. There isn't food nearby. Let alone food to feed 20,000 people. And so, what does Jesus do? He meets the people right where they are. He meets their needs and says, You know what? Let me feed you. Let me take care of this. And he is teaching his disciples the same thing. Now, I recognize that there are some of us in here. We hear this story, and it's easy for us to be critical of the crowds. It's easy for us to find fault in the crowds, like, Well, you know, those crowds, if they would have just thought of head, if they would, they, w- they should have prepared, right? They should have brought a sack lunch. They should have known hey, if you're going to go to this desolate place where there's no dominoes nearby, there's no Costco to get a $1.50 hot dog, they should have known they should have brought a lunch. You know, we get to the point where we're like, well, I thought ahead. I brought my lunch. I'm taken care of. I've got my five loaves and my two fish. I'm covered. You, the rest of you that are hungry, man, it's your fault. And it's easy for us to become very critical and say, well, those people, they deserve to be hungry. It's their fault. They didn't think, plan ahead. They didn't bring a lunch. They didn't do it. It's their fault. They, they should have thought ahead. Listen, if you find yourself thinking like that towards these people, let me warn you that you might be a Pharisee. Because the biggest, the people that had the biggest problem with the way that Jesus loved people, with Jesus helping those who couldn't help themselves, those were the Pharisees. And you know why? Because the Pharisees were people who thought, man, I'm good enough. I've done all this good stuff. Only uh, God only helps the people who help themselves. And since I've helped myself because I'm a good person, therefore... God loves me more than he loves anybody else. And those people that are helpless, man, God, there's no reason why God should love them because they haven't done what I've done. See, if you have a critical attitude towards the people that are helpless in this story, the people that are hungry, it might just be because you're a Pharisee. Because you feel like, man, they should have been like me. If they would have worked hard like me, and they would have done what I would have done, man, then they would have been taken care of. Right? That's not the case. That's not the case. In fact, one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible is that of Mark chapter 2, where Jesus, Jesus, he's having dinner with some sinners. Uh, it's Taco Tuesday, and he's got some tax collectors and some prostitutes and some drug dealers and some gangsters. He's having dinner with this kind of people. And the religious Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're on the outside looking in and saying, hey, disciples, did you know that you're Jesus? He eats with sinners. He eats with bad people. That's not the way it's supposed to work. God is only supposed to to like the good people. And Jesus overhears that. Remember what Jesus said? Mark chapter 2, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doc, it's the sick. I have come not for the righteous, but I have come for sinners. God says, listen, I came for those who can't Help themselves. Those are the people that God came for. Those are the people that God helps. Again and again and again, you see this throughout Scripture. You see this? The woman caught in adultery. She's caught in adultery. The Pharisees, they drag her out in front of Jesus and they're ready to stone her. Hey, this is what Scripture says. She needs to be stoned. And remember what Jesus does? He has compassion on her and He helps her. Instead of judging her, He helps her. Remember that story? Jesus helped. Uh, remember the story of the woman who had this discharge of blood. She had this blood issue for 10 years, and she couldn't get a stop. And because of that, she was an outcast of society. People would not accept her because she was dirty and unclean. She's helpless. And what did Jesus do for her? He helped her. What about the man up by the pool of Bethsaida? This guy was, was, was completely helpless. He was, he was paralyzed. He couldn't do anything for himself. And he's waiting by this pool. There's a story. There's this fable that if uh, you jump, if are the first person in the pool when the water is stirred, that you'd be miraculously healed. And so this man sat by this pool for years hoping to be the first one in the pool, but he had no one to help him. And so every time he tried to climb in the pool before anybody else, somebody else would beat him. And he says, man, I've waited for years. I'm completely helpless. And what did Jesus do? He helped him. Man, again and again and again, you've got the blind, you've got the lame, you've got the paralyzed. These are people that are helpless. And what did Jesus do for them? Jesus went and he helped them. He met them. Think about the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross next to Jesus. He's about to die. And what did Jesus do? He helped him. He forgave them and said, today you will be with me in paradise. listen, God helps those who cannot help themselves. That is consistent with the heart of God throughout the entire Bible. But God even takes that a little bit further. Because not only does he help those who cannot help themselves, but he calls you and I and us to help people who can't help themselves. And he's serious about it. He's so serious about it. In Matthew chapter 25, there's a story where Jesus divides the people into two groups of people. And he says, there's one group of people. These people are bound for eternity in heaven. And this other group of people, they are bound for eternity in hell. And what is the difference between the two groups of people? You know the story? Jesus says that the evidence of their faith, the evidence of their relationship with God, is how they treated the least of the people of the world. Jesus said, When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was uh, 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 a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, when I was in prison, you took care of me. And the people say, well, well Jesus, when did we do this? And Jesus said, as often as you've done these, for the least of these, my brethren, you have done it for me. And then he said on the flip side, hey, when I was hungry, you didn't give me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. When I was in prison, you didn't come and visit me. When I had all my problems, you didn't come and help me. And the people are well, Jesus, when did we do this? And Jesus said, when you fail to do this for the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. Jesus is serious about you and I helping those who cannot help themselves. You know the cool thing is? is? Today we celebrate six years as a, as a church. And I think back to the, the stories, the stories in this church of how God has helped those who cannot help themselves. I mean, I get the privilege of knowing these stories. You don't. It's just the benefit. In fact, there are some friends I have in this room, friends who uh, married for a long time. But when you began to peel back the layers in the marriage, man, there were some struggles in the marriage. There were some animosity, some bitterness, some some rooted, deep-rooted issues in that marriage. They've been married for a long time. And it's beautiful to see this couple begin to seek after God and seek after healing. And God God helped them when they couldn't help themselves. And now their relationship is in a completely different setting. And they're like, man, I, I didn't know that we could love each other like this. These people have a lot of years of marriage behind them. That's beautiful, God helping those who can't help themselves. I've got friends in this room that were addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol, addicted to pornography, people who could not help themselves that God met and God helped and God found freedom for them. That's what God does. I have friends in this room who came to, to, to church as a Pharisee, who came to church as I'm better than everybody else because I'm not as bad as you, and God has met them. And transform their heart and give them the ability to love and to have mercy and compassion on the least of the people around them. That is what God does. God helps those who cannot help themselves and he redeems us and he changes us. And he calls you and I to be a part of it. Where we get to be a part of what God is doing. Where we get to love the people that God loves. That we get to be the practical hands and feet of Jesus of genuinely uh, expressing love to the people around us, that we get to help those who cannot help themselves. So what does that apply for you this morning? Let me ask you this question. How can you better understand and embrace the heart of God? God's heart is that he helps those who cannot help themselves. How can you better understand and embrace that heart? Maybe for some of you, you need to repent. Maybe for some of us, we have a very pharisaical mentality. We're Pharisees. And the problem is we love our self-sufficiency. We love seeing ourselves as the underdog. Look how far I've come. Look how awesome I am. Look at how far, look look at all I've accomplished because I'm so good. And if you would just be like me, then you would be good like me. Maybe for some of you, you need to repent of that attitude. And instead of looking down on them, maybe you need to think, you know what? Maybe God would call me to extend a helping hand to that person, to love them, to meet them where they are. Who are the helpless around you? God calls us to help those who cannot help themselves. Who are the helpless people around you? I know in our, in our lives, we often, we insulate ourselves from, from people who are helpless. Because sometimes people who are helpless, sometimes it's a little bit messy. Sometimes waiting into somebody who's helpless, waiting into their life, sometimes it can be very difficult, and and it can be a burden. Yep, absolutely. And that's exactly what God does. He meets their messiness. He wades inside of it, and that's what he calls us to do. And you'd say, "Well, well, I just, I don't have much to offer. Neither did the disciples. They had five loaves and two fish. And God took that and said, I'll use that. Whatever little bit you have to offer to help those who cannot help themselves. Listen, how many of you in this room have had marriage struggles? You've been through it. I mean, it's interesting talking to just a couple different folks about, man, if you're married, marriage is one of the most beautiful relationships you'll ever experience, right? And it's also one of the most difficult relationships you've ever experienced. Amen to that? Like both sides of the coin. It is beautiful and it is challenging. Listen, have you been through some of those challenging seasons? You know how helpless, you know what it's like to feel helpless in the middle of that. Man, he's never going to change. Man, he's never going to pick up his socks off the floor. He's never going to, she's never, and you feel helpless. Listen, have you been through that? What an opportunity for you to wade into somebody else's story and say, let me encourage you. Let me tell you, you'll get through this. Let me tell you how, what God has done in my marriage, and let me encourage you in that. Thinking about your parents, you've been through those days. Again, I think about uh, young kids at home. Man, those days you feel helpless. There's so many kids. How do I keep my sanity? Listen, you've been through that? Man, you have a voice to be able to speak to these young parents, to be able to say, listen, we've been through there. You will make it through these days. You will make it through these days. Terrible twos, they last into the threes and fours and sometimes in the teenagers, but you will make it through it. You will get out of it. What about the helpless of our city? You called to go help the helpless of our city? Listen, I love that uh, here at Restoration Church, we're trying to figure out what that looks like for us to to engage with the helpless of our city. And so we've created, uh, uh, tried to create a couple of partnerships with a couple of uh, transitional housing uh, apartment buildings here in Yakima, where we can find some people who are in a difficult situation, who've come through some difficult circumstances, some brokenness, and try to come alongside them to say, hey, we love you. We care about you. And the coolest thing is, for Easter, we, we put these beautiful little Easter baskets together. We put these little cookie things together and some, some candy for the kids and a little uh, invite card. And we, we, we took these, these beautiful baskets to this apartment building. We're like, oh, yeah, there we go. We've, we've done something cool. And the coolest thing is, last week, Jake had a lady come in with tears in her eyes, and said, I want you to know how touching that was to me. I want you to know that that spoke such hope to me that I wasn't forgotten, that I wasn't just a throw-off in society that I I had value. She came in again this week, and again, she started tearing up. She brought her boyfriend with her, and she said, you know, we really want to be at church, and we're going to do what we can to be a part of it, but I just want you to know that little gesture, how much it meant to me. Man, what if it looks like for us to say, man, there's an apartment building that we can find people like that and say, how can we love you? How can we give you a hand? How can we extend grace to you? How can we meet you where you are just like Jesus would do? That we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus because he helps those who cannot help themselves. Third thing, we're going to fly through this one. Third thing we learn is that you and I, ourselves are helpless people right? I mean, perhaps this is a central message of the entire Bible, is that you and I are helpless. In fact, the Bible, the Bible is comprised, comprised of 66 books. You've got 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. There's approximately 40 authors who wrote all of these books, and all of these books form a single coherent story, That the Bible starts in the very beginning in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 with the creation of God, the creation of people, the creation of humanity, the creation of the world. It starts in the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible, sin enters the world. Brokenness happens, the fall of man, Adam and Eve, they sin. They brought separation between God and mankind. Listen, do you understand that the rest of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 on is all about Redemption? about God's desire and God's plan to restore our relationship with Him. The rest of the entire Bible is all about redemption. And the whole point of the story is again and again and again, you and I, we cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot be good uh, enough to fix what we've broken. We cannot be good enough to earn God's favor. Well, what about the law? What if I just obey all the rules? Listen, the rules, the law was not there to restore a relationship with us. The law was given so that we would recognize that we are never going to be good enough. Just look at the Ten Commandments. Oh, I don't murder anybody. Great. You ever lusted after something that wasn't yours? Guilty. You ever lied? Guilty. You ever stolen? Guilty. You ever put anything else above God first in your life? Guilty. Guilty. The law was there to show us that we can never be good enough, that you and I, we are helpless. Listen, if you came in here today, you've got some sin in your life, you've got some burdens that you're carrying, you've got some difficult things. Listen, I want you to know there's no shame that you have those things in your life. There's no shame in that. I recognize there are times where you feel like, man, I I can't help myself. No matter how hard I try, I I cannot overcome this. I cannot get this better. I don't have the strength, the knowledge, the resources. In fact, sometimes I feel like I don't even deserve help because I know how broken I am. Listen, in those moments, that's when God begins to whisper in our hearts. And God says, listen, I love you. You matter to me. Despite how we spin it, you and I, we are helpless people. And that's the exact kind of people that God loves to help. This is the opposite of a Pharisee. A Pharisee, they're not, they would never view themselves as helpless. A Pharisee would say, look at all I've done. Look at how far I've come. Look at how far I've overcome. Look at how awesome I am. And what happens in the Christian world when you have a Pharisee attitude is you have to have it all together. And so when you get rounded out of the Christians, you put a smile on your face. And you hide the fact that there's marriage struggles. You hide the fact that there's sin addiction that you can't overcome. You hide the fact that there is uh, financial issues. And you push down your insecurities. You, You push down your worry. You push down your anxiety because you're a Pharisee and you have to have it all together. And so we fake it. And that's unfortunate. Because by faking it, we are preventing ourselves from the very help that God wants to give us. That if we would recognize that we are helpless, that God would be there in a moment to meet us where we are. And see, if you are a child of God, that's where we begin to reinterpret the data. Where we begin to recognize the deficiencies in our life, the brokenness. And we see the grace of God meeting us where we are. God's not afraid of it. God meets us in that helpless situation. He meets us in the brokenness. And he brings redemption. This is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that God meets us in our brokenness. Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, God died for us. Not when we got our act together. Not when we cleaned up our life. Not when we tried really hard. Not when we took the first step. While we were still sinners, while we we're while we were at our worst, while we were at our most hopeless, God had mercy on us. Well, the only way to experience His power in our life, the only way for us to experience eternity in heaven, is not by helping ourselves. Is by recognizing how helpless we are, and turning to Jesus seeking Jesus in our life. Say, God, would you meet me here? God, would you take this and would you redeem it? God, would you make something beautiful out of this brokenness? Listen, what is the burden you brought in today? What is the helpless situation that you find yourself in? Let me just read to you Psalm chapter 46. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid, even though the earth trembles and the mountains topple in the depths of the sea, even though the waters roar and the foams and the mountains will quake with its turmoil. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. If you would come to him today, if you would call after him and seek him, he would meet you where you are, Give you the help that you're longing for. And give you his power. Does God help those who help themselves? No. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's me. That's you. Let's pray.